This is London Calling. You are listening to Thought and Leaders. Hello, 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 and welcome again to another global podcast that is Thought and Leaders. As you know, I scour this beautiful, elegant, magnificent planet of ours to find the most inspiring, the most innovative the most intriguing thought leaders out there. This week, I'd like you to say hello to Doug Stevens. Hello, Doug. Hello. How are you, Jonathan? Yeah, I'm absolutely great. And it's a great privilege to have you on. Now, your background is quite an interesting one. Before, should I say you became anointed as the retail prophet? I don't know what I'm (laughs) supposed to say. But um, (laughs) um, what's your background? So my background um, has really always been the retail industry in some manner. Uh, I began my career relatively early, uh, and these, of course, were the days when one could work their way up through an organization, and I did just that, starting with a retail company and sort of working my way through the human resources stream, training and development, over to the operations side of the business and eventually to marketing and general management. So I had the luxury, and a luxury a lot of young people don't get these days, of really seeing the retail industry from so many different vantage points and disciplines. It was after about 25 years on the corporate side of the business that I decided finally to begin Retail Profit with an eye to creating a boutique agency that really did nothing but focus on the future of the industry. Because I really felt that the industry itself was short-sighted. It was a very quarter-to-quarter, earnings-report-to-earnings-report sort of industry. And I felt certainly by 2008, when I began Retail Profit, that there was a need for a longer-term narrative in the industry because there was so much change happening. With covid the change from BAM, bricks and mortar, to online, it's been really revved up. It has indeed. We've sort of seen this movie before, frankly. We were sort of marveling at, in the West uh, the, at the um, level to which online shopping was increasing. But the truth of the matter was this exact scenario played out in the Chinese market in 2002 and 2003 with the SARS epidemic. Uh, Chinese consumers at that time did precisely what Western consumers did. They went online looking for alternatives Mm. uh, to what was at the time intense lockdowns in the Chinese market. And so, in fact, companies like Alibaba and JD.com, some of the biggest e-commerce companies on earth today, Mm. were born out of that precise crisis. So we've seen the replay of that now through COVID-19. Everything goes up and everything goes down. Now, this week in the British edition of the Financial Times, ASOS, which is uh, short for as seen on screen, online retailer, fashion retailer, they have seen post-COVID, once it it was over, their share price fall as much as 14%. You know, people want to go back to the store. 
Yeah, of course. Of course we do. There is an element, certainly, of the pandemic that pushed us well out of our comfort zones. Did we make do? Of course we did. You know, we looked for whatever alternatives were available, and certainly digital provided an amazing alternative. But I think there's something else at work here as well, Jonathan. I don't think consumer behavior is binary. I don't think that we sort of, you know, think, uh, am, I, am I going to be an online shopper or a brick and mortar shopper? I think we're both. But I think there's something deeper at play here. While we think of the pandemic as being nothing but a boon for e-commerce companies, like ASOS, that the reality is also that we have watched virtually every retail company through this crisis improve its own capabilities. So it doesn't it doesn't surprise me, frankly, that uh, we're seeing a drop in the share price of of companies like ASOS because the fact of the matter is they have more worthy competition today than they did pre-pandemic because virtually every other retail business has had to step up their own capabilities. And Amazon is facing the same daunting reality. They had weaker competition in 2019 than they do in 2021, thank you to the pandemic. Pre-pandemic, it was Boohoo and all these online places competing against each other. But now, of course, they're competing against this hybrid, which is the BAM and the online. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I think retailers, if they didn't understand this before the pandemic, I hope they understand it now that having those physical assets, while many of them couldn't put them to full use uh, in, as as we did pre-pandemic, what they did find was that these are wonderful local distribution points to buy online, pick up at the store. They can be a wonderful point of, of service even during a pandemic. Um, so there are different ways that we can leverage these physical assets apart from just simply treating them as the final point of distribution for a product. This confluence between BAM and uh, online, there's something that I know that you uh, wrote about recently, which goes back to a science fiction book called The Metaverse. Yeah, and I mean, the metaverse is a term that came from a, a 1992 book called Snow Crash. And, and it was essentially positing the idea as a science fiction that there would be this right. parallel reality in the digital world. And I mean, we've seen other movies like this, The Matrix being one that, you know, that there is this uh, that the internet is not simply an interface that we here in the real world interact with occasionally, but that the the internet becomes literally a world unto itself where we can go virtually, spend time, potentially work, play, entertain ourselves, and yes, consume things. Um, and all through the advent of augmented and virtual reality. So literally a parallel universe. And uh, there are many things that are pointing in that direction. I mean, just the sheer amount of time that we spend online today is so inordinate that I don't think many of us even think about going online anymore. It's not a conscious decision. It's we live in a semi-state of connectedness at all times. Mm. We really are seeing now the turn toward a more immersive online experience through the advent of virtual stores, computer-generated imagery, and, and certainly augmented and virtual reality. So 
Um, there are many out there, myself included, that believe that businesses ought to be preparing now for this build out of this virtual world that we will all be spending, I think, uh, significant amounts of our time in. Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, he was saying the really big thing that's going to be happening next is AI. There are so many aspects of our lives today that are already interfacing with AI. And in some cases, I don't even I'm not even sure that we're fully cognizant of it. You know, customer frontline of customer service anyway, for so many online companies now is fulfilled through chatbots or other forms of AI. So, yes, I do think it's a big part of not only the the future. Uh, I think it's a huge part of our present right now, but certainly something every business ought to be conversant in. I am laying you a trap, Doug. We've spoken before, so you know me. I like laying traps. (laughs) And so the trap I'm laying this time, I shouldn't actually be telling you it's a trap, but the trap that I'm laying this time is that, well, if you love AI so much, Doug, how come you are saying that there's still life in the old dog yet in terms of bricks and mortar? We don't need it. You just said it. We've got AI. I wouldn't agree, first of all, that that's what I said. Love this. Yeah, go <laughs> so, on. <laughs> maybe I'll sidestep the trap. Yeah. What I did say is that AI is informing many aspects of our lives today and certainly many aspects of our current consumer lives. What I didn't say is that that in any way supplants the need for physical experiences in the real world. Um, if anything, I think that it potentially raises the equity of those experiences. You know, as we become more and more accustomed to talking to strings of code and pieces of technology, I think that the, frankly, the randomness and unpredictability of human behavior becomes even more at a premium. Mm -hmm. I don't like to, again, I don't like to ever talk about technology supplanting the need for physical experiences or vice versa. I'm not one of these people that says, you know, no, you know, humanity will always overcome technology and we have to shop in physical stores. Physical stores today are a product of the industrial revolution. The way we build them, manage them, measure them is all basically the same as we did 200 years ago. So I do think that we need to think differently about physical stores. They are no longer the bottom of the marketing funnel. In many cases, they are the top. They are a form of media that can be extremely powerful and manageable and measurable. And we need to treat physical store experiences as a valuable media impression. And when we start doing that, it will cause us to think about those stores very differently than we do today. Because today we think about them as being industrial points of distribution for products, pure and simple. And we've got to move off of that into the future. The way that people will be buying media is a completely different way. It's about buying into the experience economy. So when you go to the store in an article somewhere, you were talking about somewhere in Switzerland where everyone was dressed up in operatic costume because it was all about the experience that they were trying to get across. So you think it's going to become more show busy then? Well, again, what people take from that is that this is all just sort of theatrical icing 
on the same old cake, that this becomes a bit of a novelty, that every store needs to be some sort of theatrical expression. I don't think that at all. We as businesses go out on the open market today and we spend copious amounts of money, hundreds of billions of dollars on media, all in an effort to try to influence consumer behavior. And yet, most retailers swing their doors open at 9 a.m. in the morning without any sort of real uh, sense of the intricacy of the experience that they are going to deliver to consumers and the need to execute that experience to an extent that it leaves the consumer with a positive impression about the brand. I don't think many businesses think that way. They think if we buy the right media on the open market, we can drive consumers to our stores to simply buy the product. So what I'm trying to encourage businesses to do is be deliberate about everything that you deliver to consumers. Experiences are really just an amalgamation of content physical, digital, emotional, cognitive content. Now, does that mean that every store needs to be uh, like a Shakespearean production? Absolutely not. But it means that retailers need to start making deliberate decisions about the content that they present to consumers and how that content all comes together to form a cohesive experience that has value from a media standpoint that leaves consumers with a positive impression of the brand. When I used to have hair a long time ago, many decades ago, there was above the line advertising and below the line advertising, and then it became through the line or integrated. So have we got to the point now that it's integrated retail, IR? I, I, think, that, uh, I think we're at the point where it ought to be, but I don't think we're at the point where it is. Carol, what's the matter? My coffee. Ed says he gets better coffee at the police station. Why not try new instant Folgers? Tastes good as fresh pert, because it's made from fresh pert coffee. Then they actually turn that fresh pert coffee into new instant Folgers. Tastes good as fresh pert because it is. Mr. McGregor, I'll try it. Try new instant Folgers. Tastes good as fresh pert because it is. Retail companies, certainly the ones that we work with and consult to, come into the discussion believing that content means advertising. Mm. And it's not at all what we're talking about when we say content. You know, advertising is advertising. And, and what we do know is that consumers hate it, they've always hated it, and they want less of it. And yet, Media companies are selling more of it, retailers are buying more of it, and the cost of it is going up. But meanwhile, millions upon millions of experiences every day are being squandered by retail companies who have captive audiences of consumers inside their physical locations. Uh But because they still look at their stores as being these uh, relics of the industrial era that are really all just about merchandising and selling products. Mm. They don't treat those in-store experiences like the media product that they really are. What is this content that BAM needs? Well, I'll, I'll give you a great example. There's a toy store in New York City that now has, if I'm not mistaken, I, I, when, I, when I first encountered them, they had one location. They now have, I think, six um, and, and open during a pandemic, by the way. Mm-hmm. 
So the, the company is called Camp, and they are a 10,000-square-foot toy store concept that essentially only dedicates about 1,200 square feet to merchandising toys in a conventional sense. The other 8,800 square feet of space is dedicated to a black box theater of experiences for children and their families. So the theme of the camp will change. For four weeks, it might be cooking camp. Uh, The experiences inside that black box theater are aimed at allowing kids to engage with toys and activities around the theme of cooking. Uh, After four weeks, the theme may shift and give kids and their families new reasons to come back. It is a completely unconventional model for how a toy store should act and, and distribute toys. Certainly not what you would expect. As I said, they not only continued their growth through the pandemic, they were able to shift that concept online and create a digital camp for kids. They actually went into partnership with Walmart to do just that for Walmart as well, create a Walmart camp for kids. And they don't, you know, they don't think about the store as being just a place to go buy toys. They think of it as being a place that kids will want to go and spend time with their parents. And in doing so, they have a tendency to buy a lot of toys. So Camp is just one example of a brand that has said, look, our our reason for being is not to answer the question, where can you buy a toy? Because the answer to that question today is anywhere. Go online and in five minutes, you can buy any toy you want. What Camp answers is a very different question. And that is, where can I go with my child to have fun and spend time? So they have built that experience out with the help of, and here we do get theatrical, Uh, they're in New York City, so they've tapped Broadway set designers, actors to work in their stores, and it is really just a, a tremendous experience. I want to catch the plane, and I can't catch the plane, we have Boris Johnson, he doesn't let us fly anywhere. (laughs) If it wasn't for Boris, I would take the plane right now. (laughs) Specialist speakers, make your next event. Fascinating. Authentic. Entertaining. Insightful. Refreshingly honest. Totally compelling. Contact specialistspeakers.com. Now, there's another store that I know that you like to talk about, another brand, which is Nike. They were kind of ahead of the curve, weren't they? They were tremendously ahead of the curve, and I'm not even sure that they understood it at the time. It's interesting. I was just uh, doing a talk with an organization recently about the Nike strategy. Basically, it boils down to this. In 2017, Mark Parker, much to the horror of investors at the time, Uh, and his stock was trading at about $51 US a share, went to the market, held a presentation in which he said, out of our 30,000 distribution partners worldwide, we are going to dedicate our time, our resources, and our support to 40 of them, four zero companies that, that Nike is going to get behind from a wholesale standpoint. The rest of you, thanks very much for coming out. It's been a slice of heaven, but we're moving on. We're going to reinvest the resources that we're wasting on suboptimal distribution, uh, what, what Parker at the time called undifferentiated retail, and we are going to pour it into 
what, what they were calling their consumer direct offense, which was a doubling of innovation, a doubling of speed to market, and a doubling of direct to consumer sales. They set a target of 33% direct to consumer sales by 2022, and by 2019, they had already hit that. Their current target for direct to consumer sales is 65% by 2025. They started building amazing stores, the Nike House of Innovation in New York, in Shanghai. They started building small concept stores built right into the fabric of neighborhoods with their Nike ID strategy. Today, Nike sits at a place where their stock is now $150 US a share, so a 300% increase in four years. They are well ahead of their target to get to 65% of direct uh, sales being direct to consumer. And they're doing it all with better customer experiences, better brand equity, and higher margins. So um, congratulations, Nike. Not only did you anticipate doing the right things for the pandemic without knowing there was a pandemic coming, but you've also essentially rebuilt your business in plain sight. There's a guy in UK called Mike Ashley. Now, he runs a chain of sportswear shops. Because Nike is doing what they're doing, when it comes to him getting his deals from Nike on trainers and so on and so forth that he would sell, as I say, in his sportswear shops, they're not playing ball as they used to play because they're going for this other model. In terms of awareness from a media point of view, And in terms of distribution, with brands like Nike, they are cutting out all these other opportunities where they would have had their, you know, in this case, trainers docked. Nowadays, it's Nike or nothing. The operative question is, how much is the brand worth? And if Nike doesn't have equity in their brand, what do they have? Nothing. You know, the production facilities that Nike might operate, if they, you know, if they even own any production facilities these days, the the offices, the equipment, I mean, what, what does Nike have of any value that could possibly ever equate to the value of the Nike brand? They're nothing, right? So if Nike is, and this was the argument that Parker was making at the time, is that if Nike is, is spending billions of dollars to produce sophisticated marketing campaigns to pump equity into their brand. But then on the other end of the equation, they're draining equity out of the brand by treating to consumers to suboptimal experiences at the hands of wholesale partners in the retail market. Yeah. Then they're putting the whole brand at jeopardy simply to, to move volume. And it just doesn't, it doesn't equate. Uh, yeah, you're right. They are the world's most valuable apparel brand and it's been that way for seven years actually this year they are worth nike i'm talking about 30.4 billion gucci comes second place if i'm a kid i'm playing soccer and i need to get boots some trainers whatever it might be i don't have to just go into the nike store and have this amazing experience i just want to get a, a cheap pair of nike shoes i just want to go in try on the shoes that's it. But I can't do it anymore. Or, well, eventually I won't be able to do it anymore. Are they cutting off their nose to spite their face? Ultimately, a brand cannot design for the lowest common denominator. Every business has consumers who will say to you, 
uh, well, I don't really care what kind of experience I get. I just want cheap stuff. I just want I just want what I want, and I want it for as little money I can spend. Uh, if every brand in the world tooled their brand experience to accommodate that consumer, it wouldn't take long before many of them went out of business. The fact of the matter is, Nike needs to operate at a premium. Nike needs to make sure that the products that it's selling, it's selling at the highest possible margins. Yeah. I think Nike's response would be to that person that you described. Well, listen, that's that is why we have an online store. If if you're not interested in experience shop there, and if you don't want to shop there, then go buy Under Armour. Adios. Adios, amigos. Yeah. We're talking about big brands. Uh, another one, Zara, they are fusing online and offline as well. In fact, they're using their over 6,000 locations, almost like warehouses, so that they're able to get the product to people in a quicker way. And the boss there, he's saying that there's still a need for BAM because people like to try on the clothes. And more importantly, from his strategic point of view, he can see or his team can see what's working and what's not working and react appropriately. Zara is one of the companies that really defined our current understanding of fast fashion. And and they did so by, yes, using physical stores as instruments for that. Uh, And it all kind of started where they said, look, we're not going to release these seasonal collections. We're going to be creating new designs all the time. We'll create some prototypes of those designs. So if we have 6,000 stores, we'll create 6,000 units of a particular product. We'll send those 6,000 units to our 6,000 stores and we'll see. We'll see what people think of them. We'll see if there's a response or, you know, how they're received. And if the response is good, we will very quickly go into full production and make sure that every store has stock. So it was a very different sort of approach not just to the use of physical stores, but really to the whole ethos of how you go about creating collections in, in the apparel market and really force the hand of so many other companies. And, and so, yes, I mean, this is what we are discovering now is that uh, physical stores can be a great place to capture consumer data. Yeah, They can be a wonderful media channel. They can be a huge opportunity for cross-docking and distribution, uh, buy online, pick up in-store And even if it's just a customer service point, if the consumer can literally service themselves online and get anything they want, stores can also be important touch points for human customer service, which has a value as well. So uh, it really is the uh, renaissance of the physical store, oddly enough, at the hands of COVID-19. You were speaking to a wonderful person from a company called Candy Me Up. She's basically a small retailer. I mean, she's not a major, 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 you know, international, you know, chain and all that sort of idea. A lot of people are worried who are smaller retailers about how on earth are they going to cope with all of this brave new world stuff. She's doing it well because... She's got over 700,000 followers, I believe, online. Mm -hmm. Is it killing the independent retailer? We used to go to the independent retailer, and it was great. And you know why it was great? Because it didn't have the usual stuff of Zara, this one, that one, and all the rest of it. It was original. But this is killing it. Unless you can cope with this fusion of online and offline, 
and have the distribution, of course, to be able to do it. Because once you're online, as you know and I know, mm -hmm. people expect it delivered like, you know, too sweet sort of idea. Mm -hmm. So Candy Me Up, she's doing very well in terms of sales. But a lot of smaller retailers are going to be worried about this because they went into – I know it's crazy, Doug, but they went into business because they were a local retailer who, like, makes, you know, one-off designer dresses or whatever it might be. Is it killing that market? Every phase of evolution kills something. Um, there was a time when if you were a local merchant and you could get a license to carry a particular product in your local market and you provided a modicum of – customer service, product knowledge, you could create a sustainable business. Because frankly, that's all consumers really expected. They wanted access to the product with a level of support to go along with it. And in doing so, in providing that little bit of product knowledge and that little ambiance that you might have had in your store as a retailer, you were delivering your end of the value equation, right? You supported that product in the local market. Now, that was also at a time when two things were, were true. Consumer expectations were far lower. Secondly, brands really didn't have much of a choice. As a brand, you couldn't scale relationships with individual consumers. It wasn't cost effective. It wasn't practical. So you needed distribution for your products in the market. And in many cases, independent retail was perfectly suitable. Well, we've evolved. Consumer expectations are far higher. Brands are now able to go direct to consumer and scale those relationships effectively and cost efficiently and, and make more money doing it and retain their brand equity. And so what does this mean for the average merchant, especially the small one? It means they have to reinvent their value. Just being there, being present with a store and providing a degree of product knowledge is no longer good enough. You have to create something that consumers really want. In the case you were describing, and I'll just tell your listeners a little uh, very quickly about Nima. Nima Causey owns a business in California called Candy Me Up, and it was primarily a wholesale business. They were a wholesale distributor of candy to retailers. Well, retail got blindsided, of course, by COVID. Imagine being a candy store. Crazy. Yeah, you're serving something edible. So Nima's business was literally just, you know, going into a, a, a state of stasis. She was literally contemplating that this might be the end of it when she became aware of TikTok and she started hearing, you know, uh, a lot of people talking about the rise of TikTok and how it was so cool and kids were spending time there. So she mustered the strength and she's by no means, and by her own confession, she's not a performer. She's not no, no. She even like public speaking, but she said, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to I'm going to start making some crazy videos here in the candy store. <laughs> nobody here, so I might as well use it as a studio. And she started doing just fun, very sort of innocent fun videos all around candy. Lovely. Yeah. And and then her brother got involved and the two of them really started having fun with it. And before she knew it, she was noticed by an influencer online who promoted her TikTok account. And she turned around one day and had 700,000 followers. Amazing. She created a retail channel 
for her products in the middle of a pandemic. And her biggest problem now is keeping products in stock. Wow. What a way to end our chat. Tell us how we can all get hold of you. The mothership is retailprofit.com, and that's profit with a with a ph so if uh, anyone is interested go to retailprofit.com there's loads and loads of uh, content video content if books are your thing we've we've got those too but yeah by all means that's the place to stop yeah and people really go there because this guy he seriously seriously knows his stuff he is respected around the world his advice is heeded by the biggest and by the people who are the most innovative in terms of coming up through the ranks napoleon said doug that britain was a island of shopkeepers <laughs> the next description would be that the world it's full of metaverse merchants <laughs> well this yeah no maybe not this world but certainly the virtual world <laughs> <laughs> fantastic okay well look thank you once again uh doug for being on fort leaders it seriously is a great privilege the honor was mine jonathan okay and for everyone else you know how to get hold of this guy i really recommend it if you are serious about taking your business to the next level Doug Stevens is definitely the man to speak to. So until next time, happy shopping, happy retailing. Take care of yourselves. Speak to you soon. Thought and Leaders is a goodbye production. It is heard around the world but we can't continue broadcasting without your support. If you're interested in sponsoring the show or are looking for award-winning content, including strategy and coaching, please DM us or email reinvent at me.com. That's reinvent at me.com. Reinvent at me.com.